Hello and welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My name's Angela Epstein. I'm Naomi Lopian. And I'm Lynn Dover. And together we're here to bring you the best bits and the worst bits about the Jewish mother. Do you need a Jewish mother in your life? The mother who can overlove you, overfeed you. We're also here to bring you the bits of wisdom that we've learned from the Jewish mothers who came before us. Today we're delighted to welcome Conservative peer Daniel Finkelstein, a former advisor to John Major and William Haig, and also the Associate Editor of The Times. So do we call you Danny or do we call you Lord or do we call you Sir? <laughs> Daniel or Danny is fine. Which, which do you, Are you a Daniel or a Danny? Well, it's a good place to start. Uh, my mum always called me Daniel and she never really liked Danny that much. Were you called Daniel when you were in trouble? I was called Daniel always, in trouble and out of trouble. Um, or Dan uh, by my mum as a, as a diminutive, but uh, never Danny. So your mum, of course, had an extraordinary experience, to put it lightly and to put it mildly. She was, of course, um, a survivor of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. But Daniel, if you could start by maybe just telling us before that experience where she was born and what sort of family she came from. Yeah, my mum was born in 1933 in Berlin, June the 10th. And by that point already, her father, Alfred Wiener, to contemplate leaving Germany, he'd been part of, I wouldn't call it the assimilationist Jewish community, but the part of the Jewish community that was in Germany that was liberal nationalist, that was definitely and defiantly German, as well as definitely and defiantly Jewish, and believed those two things could live together. And in the 1920s, he'd begun to campaign on the issue of anti-Semitism to raise the consciousness of the German middle class to the rise of anti-Semitism and the danger that it posed, not simply to Jews, but also to the very nature of German society. And he believed those two things were entwined with each other. And he could see by the time that my mother was born that this campaign was likely not to be successful because earlier in that year, Hitler had been brought to power, had formed a coalition, which he'd warned against. He'd tried to warn his allies on the sort of centre-right of the danger of allowing Hitler any purchase on power. He'd engaged in a meeting with Goering, uh, which had originally proved reassuring, but then when Goering saw the publicity that came from being reassuring to Jews, he then was much more outspoken against Jews. And Alfred took the message from that. And from other people, John Wheeler Bennett, the diplomat in this country, David Cohen, who was a, a leading figure in the Dutch Jewish community, that he'd have to move out of Germany and move to Holland. So that's what he did. He had already begun to move in June 1933. And in 1934, the whole family went and joined him. And he created something in Holland that became later known as the Wiener Library, but it was the time known as the Jewish Central Information Office. And my mother lived in the same house. So they lived below and the library was above them or the Central Office of Information was above them. So she very much lived or sort of virtually in my grandfather father's office. What was your mother like, Daniel? Can you describe her to us? Probably unnecessary to start with this. I loved my mother. And not just in the normal way that you say, oh, you love your mum. My mum was a really nice, funny, gentle, intelligent person. And what I miss about her, because she died five years ago, is just the conversations and the ability to tell her what was happening and to enjoy her kind of wry but rather sensible reflections on it. And I always say my father was an amazing individual and he had an incredible brain and he was a leading mathematical modeler and measurement 
professor and a pioneer in the field of using models for describing real events, which was the sort of basis for artificial intelligence, a brilliant man. But I always say to my siblings, mum was our secret weapon because my mother, I, I think, um, had this incredible common sense type of intelligence. She was intellectually very capable, but unlike dad, um, not an abstract intellectual. She read a lot, but she wasn't an abstract intellectual. And she saw the world in very practical, common sense and kindly way. And it was an aspiration, but also, you know, I hope a bit of that genetic materials in me too. I'm sure it is. And I, and I think judging by what you've said already, I mean, we, we must give your mum a name. What was her full name? Yeah. Miriam. So Miriam Emma Wiener Finkelstein. I actually don't in fact know where the Emma comes from. I can't tell you. But Miriam was spelt M-I-R-J-A-M. So often in this country, people would read it and call her Merjam. Uh, but of course, in German, in fact, where she's what it was Miriam. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, Daniel, was she a typical Jewish mother on the Nachas front? I think that it would be uh, not guiding people right to say that she was a typical Jewish mother in lots of ways, but she certainly enjoyed the success of her children. I think if I were to say she was a classic Jewish mother, it wouldn't sum up the right picture of her, actually. But yes, she did. Um, she definitely did enjoy knuckers from her children. And she certainly enjoyed me being in the House of Lords without any question. My brother regarded that as a highly amusing victory in the Jewish mother states. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was going to say, well, just as a, a quick sort of to flag up Nachas is, um, for those listening who aren't familiar with the term, so Nachas is, I suppose, this kind of unreconstructed joy and, and personal delight when somebody close to you, particularly a family member, um, does achieve something and you and you bask in in the glory of that. It can be as simple as as getting your twenty five meter swimming certificate, can't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was a great one for getting things in proportion. But both of my parents were incredibly positive people about the things that we did, and the more important part of where she wasn't typical of being a Jewish mother is she wasn't very critical at all. Um, of the bad yeah, things or the mistakes. Wow. I mean, she would, she would guide us, right? But she wasn't very critical. How wonderful. In fact, both of my parents really were not that. And that was an amazing thing. And I, mm. I, I, when she died, I said that, you know, I can't really remember huge... I, there's one thing maybe I can remember being told off about, but that I can't, generally speaking, remember being told off much by my parents. Even wow. when I, I, I used... Um, I didn't realise that Copidex glue for carpets was supposed to be used on the underside of carpets. Uh, even then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we need to spool back if we may, Daniel. I mean, you, you've already sort of created for us a, a very vivid picture of, a, of a, a wonderful woman in her kindness and her wisdom and what a sort of central figure she was to your life. But of course, all this was um, underpinned by a very, very difficult and singular experience, to put it mildly. She was interned in the notorious Bergen-Belsen concentration camp during the war. Did she talk about that at all? And how did she come to be there in yeah. the first place? Place. Let me let me do that question backwards. I'll tell you how she came to be there in the first place. My grandfather moved his library, uh, the Wiener Library, to London in 1939-1940. And my uh, most people thought at that point that Holland would remain a neutral country, as it had done in the First World War, and as Switzerland was. And it was decided not to disrupt the family by everyone going to join my grandfather in London. As they got closer to May 1940, they began to realise that maybe that wasn't prudent. And my grandfather moved to get 
visas, but he didn't get them in time, and they were trapped in Holland. And as a result of that, uh, in the summer of 1943, they were part of one of the roundups and taken to Vesterbork, which was the transit camp for Dutch Jews, most of which then ended up on the trains to either Auschwitz or Sobibor, which is what happened to my mother's aunt, um, who was my grandmother's much-loved sister, and that family perished. But it didn't happen to my my mother or her sisters or my grandmother. And that is because they had managed to obtain a Paraguayan passport. There were a small group of Poles based in Switzerland who had realised that they could obtain, and it would potentially be a route to freedom, Latin American passports from honorary consuls based in Switzerland who would sell them. And they then filled them out and gave them to members of the Jewish community, which was uh, one of which, um, through an intermediary, came to my uh, mother and her family. And because they had that document, they were not sent to Auschwitz or Sobibor, and ultimately they were eligible for what Himmler had hoped would be an exchange of maybe, you know, 20,000 or 30,000 Jews. Certainly he hoped initially 10,000. And he created Bergen-Belsen as an exchange camp. But this exchange, these exchanges essentially didn't really happen. Almost nobody got exchanged, with the exception of two transports, one of which had 130 people on, and my mother was one of those. Uh, that's because they had this Paraguayan passport. They crossed the border into Switzerland in January 1945, and as they crossed the border, my grandmother had to be taken from the train to hospital in Kreuzingen and died there. So my mother was then an orphan with her two sisters, and um, my grandfather, who'd been in the United States, managed to arrange for them to come and join him there. She was there for a couple of years then, actually 18 months. And in 1947, they came to London to join my grandfather where the Wheeler Library was. Uh, and she was brought up there. I met my father then in the mid-1950s. How old was your mum then? I've got a few questions for you. I'm going to bombard you just as so, I went when she was found. She, and. Did she tell you about her experiences and how do you feel that her experiences shaped her being your mum as a mother and maybe a woman? She was 10 years old when she was arrested. So it happened um, a few days actually after her 10th birthday. She still remembered that she'd been given a book on Holland in a nutshell, um, which she wasn't able to take with her, a new book. So therefore, these all took place. Um, the Holocaust experience it directly took place between the ages of, of 10 and 12 and her reaction to this was and its impact on me was so remarkable Noemi that I actually took it into my head as an adult to wonder whether her experience had really been quite as appalling as everyone else's uh, mm -hmm. it seemed not to fit with her kind of amazing balance and her amazing openness and her willingness to talk about it. Lots of these things which other Holocaust survivors, as you know, you know, not everyone's the same, but in exactly the same way that you, Noemi, had a very special parents and your you know, father uh, did so much to document in his memoirs the, 
the Holocaust. I was very lucky that she did talk to me as well and in a very open way, although I've realised, because I'm now researching her history for a book, her and my father's history for a book, I realised that it, it was the story she told me was as she understood it as a child, you know, and I'm beginning to understand it more as an adult. One big thing was very interesting. I suppose if if the if you've been in the experiences both my parents have, because my father was in Siberia where my grandfather went to the Gulag and he was deported, you can, you can choose to see this kind of totalitarian behaviour of Nazis and communist totalitarians in every minus political skirmish. But my parents took the opposite view. They were very keen on the question of proportion. And as a result of it, they were very insistent on not involving themselves in any petty rows. So they would never argue with the neighbours about a hedge. Uh, they wouldn't quit the synagogue <laughs> council uh, because I had to learn the word broigus, which is a Jewish word for <laughs> yeah. kind of uh, feud yes. or argument uh, from someone else because it was alien to their whole way of behaving. And then there were matters of public policy, you know, which I suppose you wouldn't really normally raise when you were talking about your parenting, but all three of their children, my sister's the permanent secretary of the Department of Agriculture, so senior civil servant, my brother, although he's just about to be a vice chancellor, is um, just finishing his role as chief scientific advisor for national security. And I've obviously involved myself in politics. Wow. So we've all done done varieties of things mm. in public life. And so what my parents taught us about that turned out to be important. And there it was very much a belief in freedoms um, of speech but also and of action, uh, but within the law. Uh, mm. My father was extremely keen on, the, on obeying the law. And his view was, you know, what is the point, Daniel, in being involved in politics and trying to change the law if you don't believe the law applies to you and it, that it needn't apply to anyone else? And so he was a very keen advocate of adherence to law. The Nachas quota, Daniel, just sort of mm. as you as you reel off you, your, the achievements of yourself and your siblings is quite remarkable. I'm, your mum must have had a ready breath glow when she considered what her children had <laughs> had done with their lives but in terms of um, you know we, we, we talk about this pod on this podcast a lot about obviously how mothers the mothers that came before us influenced us and and um, we've actually devoted a whole podcast to the issue of Bruegus um, you may be interested to know but um, in terms of sort of processing the experience that she had um, when you talked to her, when you spoke about, when you spoke with her, whether she was speaking specifically about what she'd been through during the war or whether you were talking about the weather. Um, and certainly as an increasing amount of footage has become available about what people endured uh, during the, the war and certainly the closing stages of the war at Belson. How much did that play in your mind on a day-to-day -day basis? Could you put that in a box and think, I cannot believe my mother endured such monstrous experiences, but I'm not going to think about that? Or, or was it always there sort of lurking in the margins? No, uh, it wasn't always there. Uh, that's a very interesting question because I'm thinking about that a lot at the moment. My sister and I were discussing it the other day. So, you know, our parents, one of their great achievements, I think, as parents is to leave us relatively unmarked by the experience but also very knowledgeable about it so my mum was very keen she hated the phrase second generation right her view was i went through this so you don't have to she didn't even like to think of herself as a survivor so she she said i am a survivor and she was keen to explain to particularly young people about it and keen to support the women library she didn't want to forget about it um she was very open about it but she was determined 
that it wouldn't spoil, you know, we only live once and she didn't want us to spoil her life or anybody else, you know, or any of her, or her children's lives either. And so that was important to her, I think. And it didn't hang over everything. Just very occasionally, I, I do remember what, just a couple of times saying to her that I was starving in relation to dinner. And that made her a bit annoyed. <laughs> um, that was one of the very few things where it did come out. I think there were a number of things about it. First of all, she was quite young. And I suppose that could make it more traumatic. But it also meant, I think it impacted her less than it appears to have impacted her sister, her older sister. Um, I'm less clear about her younger sister because she died in the 70s. So I never spoke to her about it. But I... I think it was more difficult for Ruth. How and, so? How so? But was, I think it was, was also she older? Well, yeah, I just think for her, it, she appreciated probably the dangers that they were engaged in and was more of her sort of mother's counsel. When only one of them could go to the funeral after my grandmother died, it was Ruth who went. But I do think it was also a question of temperament. I just think it was the way my mom, my mother was. She had a kind of well-developed sense of humour. I've told this story a few times, but when, when Ronald Reagan went to Bitburg, which was the uh, German cemetery, it was discovered after the visit had been arranged that there were quite a few SS graves there. And a, scan, a sort of whole big issue broke out in the United States. It became quite a big political story. And in order to offset it, he decided he was going to go to Belsen as well, to visit Belsen, because it wasn't that far away. And I heard this on the radio and I went down to the kitchen. My mother was washing up, her back was to me. And I said to her, Mum, Ronald Reagan's going to go to Belsen. And Mum replied, um, so what, I've been. Um, and uh, that was very typical of her. Um, very typical. And not in a kind of, I wouldn't want you to get the impression of a kind of sharp, sarcastic person. She could see the sort of ridiculousness of life a bit. One thing that used to puzzle quite a lot is on the question of, she had jaundice when she was in Vesterbork, and she often wondered why it was that the Nazis cared for her back to health in order to effectively either put up someone who'd been taken back to health on a train to Auschwitz or mm. sent to Belsen. She couldn't really quite understand that. And even when you read all about it, it's hard to understand. I think it was sort of part of a kind of feint that the Nazis were engaged in to some extent. I've heard from other children of Holocaust survivors that education was a top priority because it was portable and it was something you could take with you. Was this the case in your uh, childhood, that your mother really, really prioritised education because um, you and your siblings are such high achievers? Both my parents were, were educationalists. My father was a professor, my mother was a maths teacher. At dinner table, they would kind of, we would have conversations like, how many cans of drink could you place in a fridge of a certain cubic volume? That would be a very typical thing. My parents were both furious that, that people continually use centimetres as if they were a traditional SI measurement. <laughs> I'm not kidding with these things. Uh, but these were not done in a kind of way, you know the way people do it, like to get their children to show off. They were genuinely trying to work out the problem themselves. They were interested in mathematical problems. And they were interested in education. Yes, they encouraged us in our education. And that was very important to them. But just, I think, because intellectual life was important to both of them i think that's the reason and i don't think that was given any special weight by the holocaust or by my father's experience indeed when i sent my children to school for the first time i rang my father and said to him 
you know, should he go to this particular private school or we've got a place in this comprehensive school with selective intake, which is where he went eventually. Or And there's also a Jewish school. Which of these schools should he go to? And my father said to me, well, I only had at that age a few weeks of secondary school at the Trans-Siberian Railway School and I wouldn't sweat it too much. You know, in, in some ways it led them to have perspective on some of these things. What about inherited wisdom? One of the things we talk about frequently on our Jewish Mother Me podcast is the inherited wisdoms. Noemi Lin and I have talked about the phrases we've inherited from our mums. My mum famously said, you know, you can win more wars with honey. When it was going out with boys, she used to say, you know, you can't chase a bus once you've caught it. And I wondered if somebody was to sort of cut open Daniel Finkelstein and find the bits that your mother was responsible for, what are the pieces of <laughs> wisdom or the phrases or or the moments when you feel, gosh, this is mum? Because, you know, we all feel our mothers over our shoulders for, for different reasons. Where, yeah. where does where does Miriam come through through you, Th- things you say? There are lots of little phrases. I always talk about mum's law of empty containers, which is there's always <laughs> enough to make a mess. Right? And you find this, you find this, however empty, a container is if you turn it upside down it'll make a mess i promise you anyone can try you can try this at home everyone um but on the sort of bigger level there's one thing above all i think which is my mum used to have a favorite joke and it was um apart from that mrs lincoln how did you enjoy the theater um, the reason why that's important i think it relates to the whole of her life she was very strong in believing she had a very well-developed sense of the ridiculous and um of a sense of proportion and when my father died, um, my father and my mother had an incredibly close marriage. And, you know, my mother never really recovered, I think, from dad dying. It was, only, it was about five or six years before she died herself. And she, uh, I remember I'd come back from a football match um, when when dad had died. And I came back and dad was there. And, uh, you know, we obviously exchanged a few loving words. And then mum said to me, what was the score? Right. That was very typical of her. Um, uh, 3-1, by the way. Um, and um, uh, and you can see that I've got her sense of humour. Yeah, I love it. Um, she had a sort of naughtiness about the things that she would say like that. And I don't remember any sort of great bits of wisdom, but there are moments. My, my sister always remembers um, it's nice to be predictable once in a while, which she used to say with great predictability. <laughs> Um, so the humour's wonderful. I mean, have you yeah, used yeah. any of these in any of your, you know, you've written speeches for many of the great and good or in your columns. I, has any of this kind of I popped out anywhere? Direct joke, but there's no... Qu- <laughs> so the interesting thing, as I've been reading about my grandfather, Alfred Weiner, is that it's clear that the sense of humour that I share with my mum, my mum shared with my grandfather. I think that's How wonderful, um, yeah. And that's quite interesting. So... I wouldn't say she was a great one for the kind of sayings of mum, you know, sort of pretentious yes. sayings, but she had a kind of not, it's a sort of more a gentle sense of humour. And both my sister and I know when we're looking at the world through my mum's lens. My sister, by the way, now looks absurdly like my mother. Um, is, is that comforting and, to you? Um, is that comforting? I, yes. I, I, love, I love my sister. The, the, oh, she's the most... Nice amazing person in the world so just actually i'll just divert for a second it is the most immense comfort that i'm so close with my siblings that once i lost my parents because i think otherwise that would have kind of gone completely but it is a specific comfort yes that mum that that tomorrow increasingly looks like mum but i think also it's a clue that if my mother had been 
in a different generation, she'd been a professional, she probably also would have achieved the same kind of professional success that my sister has because she had all the same qualities. What I've seen in the snippets that uh, I've heard uh, you talk about your mum from first experience is her kindness. When at the my dad's book launch, she said, you must come to it when she herself was in hospital, which is something I've never forgotten. And the other story, how your parents were always asked to be on committees because they were moderate, which indeed you always are, and which is a wonderful value to have, just to say few. So with your Jewish mother very much in our minds and our forefront, how do you now go on to Jewish mother your own children, Daniel? I'll, I'll answer that question. I've just remembered one thing which she always used to say, which relates to the Holocaust, but lots of other things. She always used to say it's not a competition. When she mm. was, people would ask her about uh, whether her experiences were worse than other survivors or worse than my father's. She always say it's not a competition. And I use I, that often occurs to me also when bad things happen and people are trying to compare two bad things. It's not a competition. That was my mother's uh, phrase. Well, okay, so how has that impacted my raising of my own children? Well, I'm not obviously a Jewish mother, um, so <laughs> it's not quite the same, obviously. But um, my parents had an incredibly close relationship with us that I'm desperate to emulate with my own children. Mm. One of the things, and this is, to be fair, is true of my father as well, uh, in a very strong way. They basically did everything they could to approve of the choice. In fact, it's a very great comfort now to us making decisions when they're no longer here. You know, my brother had to make a choice between um, whether or not to stay in his job as a national chief advisor for national security or take the vice chancellorship of city, which he's ultimately decided to do. And he was able to do that knowing that dad would have approved, mm. not because dad would have chosen one over the other but because dad would have approved whichever one he chose <laughs> and that's true of my mother too um and that i really uh, agree with i want to help my children to feel supported they should feel guided so it's not a question of indulged and they should know what my opinion is but they need to feel supported in their values and their development and the other thing politically, which was quite interesting, and I think I've tried to do this with my children as well, is to understand that the experience of each generation is different and the values that you get from are different and always to be respectful of that. My, my parents were very respectful of their children and, their, and our opinions. They would listen to us. There wasn't any of this kind of calling them Ludwig and Miriam or something. You know, that would <laughs> yeah, been, you know, I, there wasn't any of that. In fact, I always regard that as really weird when I see it. But um, I mean, everyone to their own. I don't, I regard it as weird, but then I realise it doesn't matter and it's not my business. Um, but I do. It's sort of so it makes me feel slightly <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, and they never had that, but they definitely were, you know, very respectful. I remember my father taking, and both, both my parents listening to us carefully on the issue of what we thought asking our opinions, getting us to explain things to them as we knew things, and not simply always being on the transmit uh, mode. And um, knowing that they may not know, you know, for example, in my parents, they were of liberal instinct, but gay rights was quite an odd issue for their generation. But I remember trying to take them through what younger people thought and understood about it. And I was amazed at the degree to which they were receptive and open to that and learned from it. And it changed their perspective. And I'm trying to do the same with my children. So they're, I think that they were very keen on what their children could teach them as well as what they could teach their children. 
Daniel, they sound truly like dream parents and the way that you describe it makes it sound very easy. But having been parented and being a parent myself, I realise how fine the lines are and how difficult guiding is vis-a-vis pushing or criticising and being a positive critique. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And to love a parent as an adult is the most wonderful achievement your parents could have done. And that you want to emulate that is a huge credit to them. So I've been truly inspired by your talk. We we really have. We've been absolutely inspired. And we we really could listen to you all day. But judging by all those books behind you, you've got busy day ahead well, <laughs> books to read these, these books are um, for, they're <laughs> real these books are all research material for the book on my parents um that i'm writing inspired a little bit by you noemi in your amazing work um, on your dad's story um i i'm i too am going to tell that uh that story um so oh, some of the things that we've talked and hopefully a bit of their character um i i, I think my mum would definitely want me to say she she loved winnie the pooh and um there was in it uh, a story about um winnie the pooh's birthday party for him because he saves piglet's life and it's full of poo's sort of slightly false modesty and my mother thought that was hilariously funny she loved winnie the pooh and um, (laughs) she would definitely want me to say uh who me uh at the end of this Um, she she was how wonderful she would feel feel profoundly uncomfortable to have um for me to have spent all this time uh praising her but i honestly genuinely and with the best attempt that I possibly can to be acerbic, I can't really think of anything that I want to say that's quite ne- that's negative about her, to be honest. Yeah. I know that sounds utterly ridiculous and probably... Yeah. I remember saying some, to somebody once that she made an amazing chicken soup and this somehow ended up in someone's column and made me feel absolutely ludicrous. Um, but she did <laughs> I make bet she did. Soup. What yeah, am I supposed I to say? <laughs> well, I think it's the most wonderful tribute to a mother and to any human being to say that you can only think of positive things. And I shall cherish that and take that away with me, that positivity. And also want to tell our listeners while they're waiting for your new book, Daniel, Meanwhile, they can have a look at everything in moderation because those stories are truly inspiring and a gift to mankind. I echo everything that Noemi says. And and Daniel, it's been such an enriching and uplifting experience to listen to you. We really feel like even in a small sort of fragment of time that we we have an idea of of who your mum was and look at the extraordinary legacy she left behind. And one of the things we do on our sort of the takeout as we, we finish our podcasts each time is we ask about the takeaway wisdom uh, you know we're not here to preach every every mother is different despite the, the stereotypes and the ologies and Jackie from Friday night dinner every mother as we know is, in, is supremely different if there was a take a piece of takeaway wisdom that you feel you carry around in your back pocket that you think other people might benefit from and could perhaps you know give them pause for thought um, as they go about their lives what would you say it would be from from the vast amount of things that you've learned from your late mum the copied exclude goes on the underside. <laughs> <laughs> you rehearsed no, that I, one. <laughs> I think. I think. I think of all the things I've said. Um, definitely. Uh, uh, apart. Apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the theatre? Always keep a sense of proportion. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a wonderful message. You you must miss her an enormous amount, and uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know there probably isn't a day when when you don't grieve her. But clearly, as I said, and we all three of us feel that the legacy is there in in every syllable that you utter, and the wonderful Thank work you. that you do in her memory. 
Henry. So, um, Lord Finkelstein, we are curtsying in your presence. (laughs) And we've really loved listening to you. You've created such a wonderful picture of of somebody who was such a big presence in your life, a real Jewish mother. And just thank you so much for giving the time out of your busy schedule to join us on Jewish Mother Me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for asking me. It's our great pleasure. So that's all from Jewish Mother Me this time. Hopefully you'll join us soon for our next podcast. Wasn't he wonderful? Amazing. I think Lynn's been stunned in, she, <laughs> Lynn's been stunned into silence here for once. Um, so please join us soon and uh, thanks again to Lord Finkelstein or Daniel as we're allowed to call him and, uh, and have a great day.